We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to Bible class this morning. My name is Tanner Wade, vicar here at St. Paul's. It's so glad to see all of you here. And a special welcome to those listening in the St. Louis uh, area on AM850 KFUO and worldwide on KFUO.org. Uh, as is our usual practice, we'll be looking at the lessons for the upcoming uh, week, which is the fifth Sunday after Pentecost. Um, for those of you who are here in the gym this morning, we do have handouts over by the Bible rack over there on the bleachers. Uh, that can help you follow along, or if you want to follow along uh, with your phone or uh, your own Bible, please uh, do so. It's interesting as we look at the readings for uh, this fifth Sunday after Pentecost, uh, I always find it kind of interesting when we have at least one reading that is extremely well Known. And if you look at the sheet, you'll see that our gospel reading is probably one of the most well-known parables that Jesus told, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's interesting when we look at that, sometimes the context which surrounds not only the parable, but the things that are in the parable, perhaps from the Old Testament, which is what we're going to find today, um, the quotes that the lawyer, the expert in the law, uh, gives to Jesus, and why perhaps Jesus responds the way he does. Uh, so to begin with, let's start with the gospel. And the reason I have the gospel and the Old Testament side by side is we're going to jump uh, around just a little bit. So uh, verse 25 of Luke chapter 10, parable of the Good Samaritan. And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So there's a couple things there, even in that first uh, verse that maybe we can easily skip over. The first is, what does it mean that a lawyer stood up? Well, this would have been one that was an expert in the law. And this doesn't mean he has his uh, JD from Harvard Law School or something like that, but rather uh, he's an expert in God's law. This would have been someone who was known in the community to have the Torah, the Old Testament, and especially the legal aspects of it, down pat. And you'll see why that's important uh, in just a minute. And the other thing in that first verse is the phrase, to put him to the test. Um, there's one other time in Luke that that phrase is used. Does anyone happen to remember when that might be? Not quite, not quite. Nope. It's actually the temptation account. So in the temptation account, the devil sought to put Jesus to the test. And that exact phrase, this is the only two spots in Luke that we see those two phrases, or that phrase, sorry, two times. Uh, and so it's interesting, this clearly has a connotation that he's trying to see if Jesus is going to be able to withstand or stand up to his questions. He's the expert. And now he's trying to find out, well, this guy, I'll say he's a teacher, but this question, let's put him to the test. And the question is one of the central questions um, of Jesus' ministry. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? You speak about this life that is in you. You are the way, the truth, and the life, and everything else that you say, yet what shall I do? What are you going to teach me who is the expert in the law? And so Jesus, as one might, if they, uh, even in today's world, if a lawyer or an expert in some, something asked them a question, turns the question back on him, on the lawyer who asked it in the first place. In verse 26, we read, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? That he is Jesus. Uh, in your handouts, I guess that's one of the, the benefits of kind of the older uh, versions of the Bible with the red text. You can clearly see uh, the words of Jesus in red there. Uh, so he, Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus gives the lawyer a chance kind of to prove his own knowledge of the law. Jesus knew that he was going to answer correctly. But here, it's that great reversal where the lawyer asked him the question. So Jesus says, well, what do you read in the law? And the lawyer answers, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, that first, uh, the first kind of three quarters of that answer, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This lawyer, rightfully so, is able to quote to Jesus straight from the law. And then the last part, love your neighbor as yourself, is a direct quote from Leviticus chapter 19, hence why it is our Old Testament reading. So I want to pause there with the gospel for just a minute because we saw how the lawyer answered and look at the Old Testament reading to see the context of at least the love your neighbor as yourself because you're going to, as we know, that's going to be the central kind of tenant of this question. Who is my neighbor? Uh, So we start, and this is one of those uh, sections where because it's a long list, the start of the reading for next week is actually in the previous chapter, but it gives an appropriate context to what uh, is happening. So Leviticus 18, that's why it starts in uh, Leviticus 18, and then we'll get into Leviticus 19. Uh, And the Lord said to Moses, uh, spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. There, right away, that phrase, I am the Lord your God, should probably remind us of a few things, uh, especially in the Exodus narrative. But specifically, think back to the Ten Commandments, and how did the Ten Commandments start in Exodus 20? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. That phrase, and we're going to see it a bunch, uh, I am the Lord, is a reminder of what God's done for his people. And where had they been living? Well, the land of Egypt. Where were they going? The promised land of Canaan. And in both uh, instances, you see here, God remind the people right away, it's going to be my words that you follow. Not maybe some of the practices you picked up while you were in Egypt. Not, you know, mixing this with what you find out when you get to the land of Canaan. But rather, it is my words my laws, my commandments, my statutes, you ought to follow. Uh, You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. One of those instances where you realize... God's trying to nail down a point here. And what's that point? I am the Lord your God. This is not going to be like it was in Egypt as far as with their gods and different gods and deities. It's not going to be how it is right now in Canaan with their gods and their deities and idols. I am the Lord. It's kind of like an ultimate uh, because I said so. Uh, For those of you who are parents uh, or can remember back to your own childhood uh, when you'd ask your mom, well, why do I need to do that? And you inevitably got back the, if you're a child, very unsatisfactory response of because I said so. And you just kind of had to say, okay. Or if you were like me, maybe say, well, why do you say so? And then, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it's the ultimate kind of because I said so. And what authority does he do that with? Well, he is the Lord, their God, the one who brought them out of the land of slavery. And so now, that second section where it's titled, Love Your Neighbor as Yourself on the handout, that's from Leviticus chapter 19. If you go to Leviticus 18 verse 9, you'll see it's something very uh, different. And it's not actually the reading. So this is where it's a little confusing. We actually start in uh, chapter 18, skip down to verse, or chapter 19, verse 9. We read, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. 
You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So there you have right away those who are able to plant, those who are able to harvest, they are going to be uh, better off than the groups he mentions, the poor and the sojourners. That's the travelers, the ones who are maybe coming from a distant land. You know, we, we can travel cross country pretty easily nowadays, about a four, five, six hour plane flight, or if you want to take a train, I guess it might be a little longer. But back in those days, to travel was really a dangerous concept. To go, leave the protection of your own land and go, you know, there's not a quick trip every three miles down the interstate uh, in BC, uh, the Middle East. You had to rely on either, either someone else or your own ingenuity to try and come up with food in an unfamiliar area, to come up with protection and shelter in an unfamiliar area where there's not a whole lot of natural uh, protection. Think about the Sahara des Desert or uh, even the Arabian Desert. And so if there's someone traveling, they're going to need someone's goodwill, really, to survive. And then you also have the poor, those who cannot afford or for whatever reason are not able of their own doing to plant, to harvest, to gather food or even have shelter maybe for themselves. So what's the statute or what's the law that God gives them? Well, when you harvest, don't go all the way up to the edge of your field. Give a little bit of room in case someone needs something at some point. And as you're harvesting, just like would happen, you know, when you're even today, there's going to be little leftovers, seeds or kernels or maybe even stalks that fall out of the basket or whatever you're using to carry it. Leave those be in case someone needs it. And why are they to do that? Well, for I am the Lord your God, because I said so, says God. Uh, we get to verse 11. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. There, if you notice, there's something kind of particular about what is listed off there. They're really sins that you can kind of get away with in the eyes of others. If you think about stealing, the goal is not to get caught. And if you think about uh, dealing falsely, the whole point is that the other person doesn't know that you've uh, dealt falsely with them, that you've either uh, doctored with the measures or you haven't given them what you've said. And if you profane uh, or swear by God's name falsely and so profane the name of your God, again, the whole point is not to, when you tell a lie, is not to be an obvious liar. That's the great deception that sometimes we all uh, fall into is we think we can get away with it. And what's the reminder here? These are sins of your conscience. Maybe other people won't see that you dealt falsely with your neighbor or with someone you had a business dealing with, but that doesn't mean you should do it. it you don't try and see what you can get away with. It's kind of God's point in those two verses. And why should we do this? Well, it's that same refrain. I am the Lord. Because God says so. In verse 13, we read, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The, hire, the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. There you have uh, situations where someone's in power over someone else. The one who has the field to which people work in has the funds that they need. That's why they're working for them. And so to keep a day's wages from someone is not only uh, to keep money out of their pocket, but sometimes their very well-being. This was a society in which you worked every day, except for the Sabbath day. This was a society in which if you did not own the field, you would have to work in order to survive. 
And so here, God is reminding his people that when you're in a place of power, maybe you have the quote-unquote advantage, it's not your job, and it's definitely not what you're called to do. In fact, it is wrong to try and basically use that power to belittle, oppress, or even, again, deal falsely, rob the people who work for you, those who you could say were under you uh, in their daily vocation. And you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Now, of course, what can't a deaf person do here? So if you curse at them, they can't hear you. They don't know you've done it. And what about a blind person? What can't they do? Well, obviously, see. So if you put a stumbling block in front of them, they won't know it's there. And they won't know who put it there because they can't see it. And here, it's both, it serves those uh, groups of people serve as both a literal reminder of who, uh, what not to do, but also a metaphorical one. Again, this is the whole concept of just because you can get away with it or just because someone may not notice you did it or because they can't come back and repay you in kind doesn't mean that you should try and get away with whatever it is you're trying to do unlawfully or unjustly. And again, why? Well, I am the Lord because God says so. I said it was going to be a familiar refrain, and I think every two verses there, you get just that little reminder in what God says, I am the Lord. Just in case someone wanted to raise their hand and be like, hold on, Moses, wait, I don't, yeah, no. It's I am the Lord. This is not from Moses, but from God. This is God's laws for his people. And in verse 15, you shall do no injustice in, the, in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but, righteousness, uh, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. There it's kind of interesting. I think we should probably maybe clarify that verse 15, when he says, do not be partial to the poor or the great, he doesn't mean, and especially if you look at it in what we've just read, don't care about the poor. But rather, he's reminding them in literal cases of judgment and in our own minds, how ought we to look at one another? Well, in righteousness, in actual truth, not just look at their standing and decide that's, uh, you know, what we're going to prefer. That's who we're going to be partial towards because of where they're at, both on the uh, both ends of the spectrum, on the poor side, but also do not defer to the great. Rather, judge in righteousness. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. And there in verse 17, it's interesting. You notice... God doesn't say, don't uh, have heart, ha, uh, sorry, hate your brother in your heart because what he did was okay. No, but rather, no matter what happens, even when you are rightfully wronged, even when someone does something against you, you need to go and address it. And if you think about our own lives, how often we love to kind of maybe push things under the rug. Maybe bury that because the conflict in the moment is just not worth it. At least that's what maybe we feel. Or, you know, it'd be a lot easier if we didn't mention that around the dinner table because of the conversation that's going to ensue. And what does that breed? What does that do in our minds and in our hearts if we continually just start pushing things under the rug? Yeah, resentment. It breeds resentment. And what's the reminder of God here? You're not to hate your brother in your heart. And that's why it's so interesting to me, and I think such a great reminder, lest you incur sin because of him. Not lest he incur sin, lest you. Who is sinning when we have resentment in our heart? Whether or not maybe we feel that's rightfully ours to have. Well, it's us. It's ourselves you have that resentment, that's on you. 
And so God tells his people to reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you sin because of him. And then finally in verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And now you can probably see in that last verse why this is included as the Old Testament reading uh, for this next Sunday, because the gospel lesson, of course, uh, and the Good Samaritan and the parable of it, the lawyer answers with both Deuteronomy 6, that you shall love your Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And in the Hebrew, that's literally all that you have, that strength, that might, you know, and we translate that as might in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, but literally in everything that you have. But then he also adds Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Now we go back to the gospel lesson. And Jesus, his response to the lawyer is, you've answered correctly. You're absolutely right. You are the expert in the law here, and you are not a false expert. You knew what you were talking about. So there you go. Go and do this, and you will live. And, of course, that's the big problem for this man. And that's why the next verse, verse 29 of the gospel reading, he immediately tries to ask a follow-up question. Uh, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? You may be wondering, well, okay, why is there that ambiguity? So in the original Hebrew, that word neighbor, as it's used in Leviticus 19, is the word for perhaps a friend, compatriot, someone who is in close proximity to you, but also someone you're in good standing with. Now, it also can mean any fellow citizen, any fellow human being. And so maybe you can guess which way this expert in the law was trying to get Jesus to go. Not that it's any fellow human being, not that second definition, but that first, that these are the people who we are in good standing with. These are the upstanding citizens. They're the only ones that can be considered my neighbor. Those I'm a compatriot with or one that I find uh, to be righteous in my own eyes, that man would be worth this care. And then we get to the parable. And you can kind of see now in the context why Jesus uh, starts the parable with how he does. Because here is a man who's hoping that Jesus says, it's those who are upstanding, those who are righteous in the eyes of the world, those who you are friends with, that you are able to love as yourself and you don't need to worry about everyone. Well, so Jesus starts the parable by saying, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Again, we're highlighting, I said a couple of minutes ago, how dangerous it was to travel. Uh, and the same was true both in BC Israel and also in the first century here. Again, you go outside the walls of protection of the city, it's every man for himself. There's no highway patrol, there's no call boxes, there's none of the things that we would maybe think of on a long distance journey. It's just you, maybe an animal, a walking stick, and probably a dagger. So if you run across five people who wish to do you harm, and you're by yourself, you're in trouble. And that's what happened to this uh, man in the parable. He was left half dead. Now, by, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Here you have a priest, possibly maybe on his way to the temple in Jerusalem. We, we're not really sure. There's not more. You know, you've got to be careful not to add too much context. But here is a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And maybe this priest is coming from Jericho back to Jerusalem. And he sees this man who's not only, he's beaten and left for half dead. He's bloody. He's battered. Maybe the priest isn't, isn't even sure if he's alive. And this priest knows that if he deals with this man, he's going to have to go through a whole ritual washing. He's going to be left unclean because of the man's blood, because of his stink, the filth, the dirt that was on him. 
And if he's dead, he's definitely going to have to go through all the ritual washings because he's not supposed to handle a dead man with his own hands. So what's he do? Rather than maybe worry himself about all that, he simply passes by on the other side. In verse 32, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And it was interesting, uh, I had never thought of it like this, but in one of the commentaries they mentioned one possible option for that Levite was he was maybe following the priest, literally following him, not, um, you know, obviously he came after him, but within eyesight of one another. And so when the priest, the one who worked in God's house, who, you know, was supposed to really know his stuff when he passed by, one option is the Levite thought, well, if he's going to pass by, I better pass by because he knows what's what, and I don't want him to think that I now am unclean. The other option, too, is that this Levite would have also been very knowledgeable about the ritual cleanliness laws from the Old Testament because he was a Levite. These were the ones who were supposed to know the worship practices, the worship laws, the ritual uh, uh, regulations and, and procedures. And so either way, though, you have this concept of two guys who are really supposed to know their stuff, who are supposed to totally understand what God wants people to do and live that way. They go to the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, verse 33, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, that would have been very hard for those listening to this parable, especially the expert in the law, to have handled. When he said a Samaritan, these were not the people you were supposed to fraternize with and definitely not talk to in a good light. Think about in a good light. These were the ones who we read in 1 Kings literally left for false idols. They were exiled to Assyria, and they gave up the commandments of God. They were the ones who kind of went by the wayside. And so when they came back, they were not the people you wanted to deal with. These were not the type of people you wanted to see, let alone befriend. So when he, Jesus says a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and saw him and had compassion. Again, this is one of those like uh, crowd silencing moments in a parable story where Jesus says this, but a Samaritan, and everyone goes, what? No, no, okay, no. And yet that's Jesus's exact point. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine, and then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. There you see that the Samaritan more than just has compassion, more than just says, oh, that's too bad for that guy. Or, hey, buddy, do you need a glass of water? No, he bounds up his wounds. He cares for him. Poured on oil and wine, first century Neosporum, if you will, and then put him on his own animal. That would have meant that probably this guy traveling, if he was riding the animal, would now have to walk. Or if that animal was carrying something, he was probably going to have to bear some of the load that the animal was carrying himself so that this man could ride on his animal and the animal make it to Jerusalem. And so it's interesting when you think about it, here is a man who's literally done more than just have compassion, but has taken the burden of that neighbor and made it his own burden by using his own animal, by using his own oil and wine and bandages, perhaps even his own clothes as bandages to heal or at least uh, seal off the wounds this man had. And the next day, uh, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He gets the guy a room at a hotel. He pays out of his own pocket. The Samaritan pays out of his own pocket two days wages. But more than just two days wages says 
whatever more you spend, I, not, hey, when this guy wakes up, you know, find out how much he has in his bank accounts, see if he can pay you back, and then decide how we're going to split the bill. But rather, I myself will pay you for whatever you spend to take care of them. Take care of him, I should say. And so Jesus asked the expert in the law, the lawyer, which of these three do you think, you expert in the law, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now you can see why this would have been so shocking for the people, because not only was it fellow citizens, but even Samaritans. Jesus didn't just go to maybe Roman citizens that were passing by, or maybe Greek citizens, but the people they hated, the sharks and the jets, or some sort of, you know, uh, big rivalry. Cubs, Cardinals, if you guys want to, right? These were not the people you were nice to. And so, Jesus reminds or tells the man, who's your neighbor? It's even the guy that you can't stand the most. The one that you just have no interest even in caring about. You can't stand him so much you'd just rather never think about him again. You're actually supposed to go out of your way, think, care, and have compassion for him. That's included in who your neighbor is. It's not just those who are in good standing with you, but even those who are definitely, without a doubt, not in good standing with you, you are to care about. And you think about in our own lives as Christians how often we can fall into maybe that same trap that the lawyer had fallen into where it's kind of nice if we do that whole love your neighbor thing as long as we like the person we're helping. It always feels a little easier to help the people that we would like to help. And yet, Jesus' reminder to the lawyer, the expert in the law, the one who is supposed to know better than anyone, is that it's not just the ones you want to help, but the ones you especially don't want to help. They, too, are your neighbor. And as we think about uh, in today's culture, where I think we are, without a doubt, losing our ability to argue or discuss things without making things personal and attack-oriented almost immediately, how often people don't even associate with one another because of a single viewpoint or because of who or how they voted on a certain issue, and how quickly just the general population is to try and attack people, label them as something, or label them as not something, and then say that we should never have anything to do with them again because they are this way, or they don't do this thing, or they don't believe this is right, or they don't believe this is wrong. And what's Jesus' whole point here? Is yes, even those people, maybe it's the person you have nothing in common with, and yet he is or she your neighbor. And we are to show them compassion and mercy, kindness, Christian love and support. And yet, so too, even in our own lives, that becomes an avenue we only take for those we'd like to help. And so the Good Samaritan is a great reminder, uh, especially in the context of today, of what it means to show mercy, to show compassion, that it's not just a feeling that we feel like we want to do this today, and it's not just a, if it's convenient, and it's not just if we like the person, but literally at all times and in all situations, we are called to have compassion and mercy on those. And especially when they're down, when they are at their weakest, that's when we as Christians are called to go down there and help them bear that burden, just like the Good Samaritan did. Literally using our own, whether it's blood, sweat, and tears, financially, whatever it is, and help them get them back on their feet. And so that's why I think it's kind of cool when we see it side by side with the Old Testament reading, an Old Testament reading that uh, in it itself is a reminder of how you're supposed to care for those who can't care for themselves by not 
harvesting to the edge of your field and not going back to make sure you get all the gleanings of the harvest so that the traveler or the poor could potentially use your work, use the things you've toiled for and built up to survive. And so you kind of see now the great irony of that lawyer quoting Leviticus 19 at the end when he himself was simply thinking about those he wanted to help, those who he thought were good enough or perhaps even deserved his help. And it's in, you, you wonder if he didn't think about that, someone who would have probably known all of Leviticus by heart right after Jesus uh, finished this parable, the parable that literally kind of points back to that first part of Leviticus 19. Uh, all right, so those were the first two lessons. I'll open it up for any questions. I know that was a little bit longer than usual before we get to our first set of questions, but uh, open it up to any questions if there are any. Yes. Our... That's a great point. Yeah, so in today, the question was, could we say that things like a food bank um, or some of the maybe programs we have set up that maybe we donate to, that they then facilitate that compassion and mercy are the way we help our neighbor? And absolutely. You know, that doesn't mean that we should never do it ourselves, but certainly there are um, charities, there are uh, options, not only within this church, but within just the community at large, that they can kind of facilitate it, and perhaps they're even the best ones to do it because of whatever the situation is. Um, and so by supporting those things, absolutely, you are caring for your neighbor, but it's, it's kind of like a yes and. You know, it's not that we get rid of that first. It's not that I've written a check to this charity, therefore I can kind of go about my way and not worry about the neighbors that I run into face-to-face -face because, well, I, I cut that check. And it's also not, well, I only really, if I don't see the problem myself, if the person doesn't come to me specifically and ask me for help, I don't need to really do anything. I don't have any neighbors that need help. And so it's kind of like that yes and, where neither, you know, it's a, again, yes and. It, you have a responsibility both to those you come in contact with face to face on a daily basis, but also um, it's a great thing when we can uh, support or help volunteer even. It's not just money, it can be time. Um, or other gifts that God's given you, like uh, a building or whatnot. Uh, if you're uh, good with tools, I am not, so um, that will never be mine. But my dad is a contractor and can build wonderful things, and that is definitely a gift he has and has used for things like that, um, certain charities and stuff in the past. And so it, in all aspects of life, we are called to do this. So sometimes it's through charities, food banks, other services or um, organizations that are set up specifically to carry out this care and compassion. And sometimes it's just up to us in our daily life as we come across someone to uh, show that kindness and compassion and that mercy um, that, of course, we know as Christians, we ourselves have received most undeservedly from God himself. So is that kind of... All right. Any other... Questions? Yes. Yeah, that's a great point. So the comment was, uh, it's interesting how this parable uh, has changed the meaning of the word Samaritan. And especially in America, there are actually still Samaritans in existence as an ethnic group. Um, but you're right. In America, when you hear be a Samaritan, <laughs> you're not thinking like the expert in the law did, which is, well, that's the people that we're supposed to hate. No, we usually think of this kindness and compassion and mercy of, uh, that the Samaritan showed this man that has become in America at least pretty synonymous with the whole, just the word Samaritan. Samaritan's purse. Yep, Samaritan's purse, yeah. Now, that's an excellent point. Uh, any other questions? No, all right. Well, let's go on to our epistle reading then. Uh, the epistle is from Colossians 1, 1 to 14. And I'm going to kind of go quickly over the first uh, 
eight verses or so because it's kind of just Paul's typical introduction. Not that there's not good stuff there, but really in how it connects with the other um, lessons, the, the back half of it, 9 through uh, 14, really kind of hit at what we just discussed with the Good Samaritan in Leviticus 19. So starting at verse 1 of chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So clearly it's an address here, just like we would maybe even address letters today, um, though I guess we don't send letters out very much today. But uh, maybe as we, how we'd address an email, that first little byline where we say who is sending this letter, to whom, and where. Uh, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world. It is uh, as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So those first eight verses, it's pretty straightforward. It's, God, it's sorry, Paul thanking God and letting the church at Colossae know that he is thanking God for their faithfulness in the gospel, in the truth that they heard. And that faithfulness, that spirit of truth, their devotion to uh, that truth, the truth of Christ and him crucified and what he's done has made its way back to Paul. And so he's just letting them know, kind of like we do, hey, I've heard you guys have been doing great. And I give great thanks to you. But now we get to verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And we're stop there for a second, because here Paul further explains what's the specifics of what he is praying for for this church. Well, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to God, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And how are they going to do this? Well, by being strengthened with all power according to his, that's God's glorious might, and for all endurance with, and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. And that verse, if I had to highlight one, uh, it, verse 12, I think, is the key there in this section because it reminds them that it is God the Father who has qualified them to walk in this manner worthy of the Lord. That when Paul prays this, he is also praying and reminding them to pray for God's strength, for God's will to be done. Reminding them that the good works and the fruit that they would bear from those good works comes from God, not from them. And you're going to see how that's even more powerful in the last couple of verses here. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's, that is such a powerful passage when you think about what it means. That word uh, domain there is the control. It, that's another, I guess, synonym for it would be control of darkness. It was a matter of fact, though, that you were in that domain, in the control of darkness. You were in sin. It wasn't like you were like peeking over out into the light trying to escape yourself. No, you were over there. And Paul says that he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's literally like picking you up, he himself carrying you 
and dropping you off out of the control of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. You think about how powerful it is that God's love and what he had to do in order to be able to transfer us from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, the pain that he had to endure. And yet at the same time, it's a great reminder that we of our own doing would have no hope to ever get out of the control of darkness, the domain of darkness, the sin that we were in. And so you have this great uh, kind of juxtapositional position that you were in this domain of darkness and now you've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Who did that? Well, the father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. Whose ID or badge or whatnot did you scan when you got into that other kingdom? Well, no, it was God's. It was not your own doing. It was not your own qualifications. But it's because he qualified you. It's because he transferred you. And it's a humbling reminder that maybe more famously is expressed in Ephesians 2. You know, for it is by grace we are saved through faith, not of ourselves, but as a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And we can be very tempted sometimes to boast about our faith, whether it's I've been a lifelong Lutheran or I haven't missed a Bible study in 18 years. Those are all wonderful things. But it's a great reminder, this chapter or the, this verse in Colossians, I should say, and what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that it is not your work is not what you do, it's not how perfect you've been. None of that even gets you a bit closer, but rather it is God's will, his grace and his mercy, which has qualified you and transferred you from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And who is that son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins? I mean, how powerful is that to think that it is his beloved son, that transferring out of the control, the work of God himself to deliver us to that kingdom. And that work delivers us. It gives us redemption. It redeems us the forgiveness of sins. So that, to me, it's one of those interesting verses because when you have, anytime you have a gospel lesson like we do, we're so often... Uh, it's well known. Sometimes the focus can be on that. But it's a great reminder here that we are kind of like that man who was left for half dead. We had no ability to heal what was wrong with us. We had no ability of our own doing to get us out of the control of darkness, the domain of darkness. And yet God has qualified us and God has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. All right, any other questions? I think we're gonna have time to get to Psalm 41. So that's, that's a new record for me, getting to all four. That's good. All right, no questions? Okay, we're gonna move on to Psalm 41 then. Uh, for the last thing we'll cover today, we got about eh, seven, eight minutes. So I'm gonna try and get, get through as much as I can. Uh, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So right away we have the authorship. Who wrote this psalm? Well, it's a psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. There it's interesting, that phrase, blessed is the one who considers the poor, also occurs in another section of wisdom literature, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 21. But the start of that verse, and this uh, kind of rings, I, the reason why I included it, um, is because it rings so true to what we just learned in our gospel lesson. The start of that verse in Proverbs is, whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. So it's kind of an interesting little uh, tidbit there that that phrase also occurs in a pretty uh, relevant, at least to these verses, uh, proverb about loving your neighbor. The Lord, in verse two, the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In, 
his illness, you restore him to full health. At first glance, these three verses, you may be thinking, okay, David's kind of just reminding us how we ought to be. Maybe David himself is even trying to lead by example. But as you see in verse 4, David knows this is actually not the case at all. In verse 4, we read, As for me, as for David, he said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. So blessed is the one who considers the poor. That's the one the Lord protects because he keeps the Lord's commandments. And yet David recognizes, as for me, I need you to be gracious to me, God, because I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now, when we usually think of Psalms, when we talk about people acting out against David, or even just the Psalms that talk about enemies rising up against the nation of Israel, or the people, God's people, I should say, um, we usually think it's kind of something they don't deserve to some extent, that someone else has been the aggressor. But here, if you look at how the, the start uh, and the middle, they, they work in the context of the entire psalm there, that we've, we're not quite done, but we're almost there. You see that David's acknowledging, um, yeah, I may kind of had this one coming. I sinned against the Lord, and so even my friends have said, enough with you. You're not acting as you should and have lifted their heel against him. His enemies say, when will you just die and your name perish? And those who hate him whisper about him and imagine the worst for him. But you, O Lord, in verse 10 we read, be gracious, show favor to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Now this is here that repay him is not vengeance that repay them is make it right to go about and make it right with them so the word is actually shalom if you guys uh, maybe one you've heard of before in, in uh, Hebrew at least but it's a basically the word for peace or um, completeness it's kind of hard to translate into English but it's not like I'm gonna go there and rip their throats out because they've risen up against me. No, it's the opposite. It's more, I've got to go and fix something uh, to give kind of peace, give this situation peace. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me because you have upheld me because of my integrity. Now that seems strange, doesn't it? That he's trying to appeal to his integrity well what has he just admitted similar to what we do every time we have confession and absolution we admit I'm a poor miserable sinner and we trust that in our heartfelt confession in our repentance that God is gracious to us that God shows his favor to us and forgives our sins uh, through his son Jesus Christ and here David is saying he will know that you delight in him as he repents if his enemy does not shout triumph over him. If he's able to go and do this, he, he trusts that God has heard his repentance. Uh, so in a sense, he does actually have integrity because he has admitted what we should all admit, that he is a sinner, a poor, miserable sinner, and he's done things that are wrong in his life. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So how does he end? By saying, well, we'll see what happens, but blessed be the God of Israel. 
from everlasting to everlasting, the eternal God. And then amen and amen is just truly, truly, basically let it be so. Uh, and so it's a, a great psalm to remind uh, ourselves not only that the Lord is gracious to us, but also verse 4, as for us, we need to say, O oh Lord, be gracious to us, heal us, for we have sinned against you. And of course, the great news, the news we rejoice in every day is that God has been more than just a little bit gracious, but given the life of his very son so that uh, we know and trust that that forgiveness is true forgiveness, that God has been gracious in mercy. And as uh, Paul said in Colossians, has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, any questions on the psalm? Yes, sir. So if you think about David's life, so the question was, do we have any context about David's life that would maybe point to exactly what this psalm, uh, what David, uh, why he uh, wrote the psalm the way he did? Uh, as far as an exact answer, you know, like we for sure know it was this time. We do not. But if you think about the life of David, of course, there are several situations in his life where uh, he was not the leader that he ought to have been. Uh, the obvious one is uh, with Uriah the Hittite, where he had uh, taken Uriah's wife Bathsheba for his own and sent Uriah out to the uh, deadliest part of the battle in order to die, and he died, so that he could take Bathsheba uh, to live with him and it not look as if uh, he was being the scoundrel that he was, <laughs> uh, quite literally. So that would be maybe one option, but again, it's like uh, a lot of the Psalms. There are things we know in David's life that we can point to, but as far as, you know, this was written in this exact time period, we do not uh, know exactly, but there are some uh, moments that seem more likely, at least, than others. All right. Any other questions about Psalm 41 or any of the readings? No? All right. Well, let's end, uh, let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you today for all the gifts you have given us, the gifts of compassion and mercy, of grace and favor that you bestow on us that we could never hope to deserve. And especially this day as we studied your word, uh, keep, your, uh, keep your will in us, that we would seek to do your will and show compassion kindness, mercy to our neighbors, whoever that may be. Uh, we pray as we go about this week that you would give us safe travel for all those returning home uh, after the holiday weekend, and that in all we would do, we would serve your holy name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Riverside KFUO, a click away 24 hours a day. Originating from the studios of KFUO Clayton, St. Louis, the messenger of good news.